I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Good. So it's that time of the week again, and mm-hmm. you and I are staring at each other through uh, webcams mm-hmm. and blurry backdrops and all of that. I, how much processing time do you think is being wasted by GPUs blurring backgrounds oh, or substituting many. in other people's backgrounds right now? I mean, yes. there's got to be a substantial amount of heat death of the universe is, is caused by... Uh, Gmail, not Gmail, uh, Google Me and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, Zoom and all these things, like doing these, this really intense AI operation to determine what is foreground, what is right. background, and then doing something with the background. Yeah. Well, you know, now that crypto's crashed, we got to do something with all those GPUs. So Very might good as well point. be this. Very good point. <laughs> so we're staring at each other. We're we staring? We're staring yeah. at each other. It's that uh-huh. time. And this week I figured... Um, We've been talking on and off about various different languages mm-hmm. and our experiences with them. Obviously, Python, JavaScript, C++, um, mm-hmm. HTML, such as that's a language. It's got, it's, it ends in an L, so it's a the language, L, right? The L stand, does stand for language. Yes. It's like SQL, right? SQL, uh, right. Structured uh, Query Language. True. You know, that's it's right. not really that structured. You can do more than query with it and <laughs> so, questionably a language. Um, yeah. <laughs> visual Source Safe. Again, none of those words are true. <laughs> none of the above. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, anyway, we, I feel like, we're, again, we're off target already. But th- talking in general about languages, and the mm-hmm. one we haven't really spoken about is Rust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mainly yeah. because you and I haven't got as much experience with it as perhaps we ought to in order to have like really strong opinions. But we have used it. Yes. I've used it on a couple of projects. Uh, I've got a toy project that I uh, created, uh, which is like my standard way of learning a new language, which is to write a ray tracer or a path tracer in it. And that was a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. it's pretty performant. I was very impressed with it. But that was a while ago. And then I've written some command line tools in it since. Mm-hmm. And you've done some work on it too, right? Yes. Yeah. I uh, made some changes to the um, Ethereum uh node software that was written in Rust Oh, to do a little bit of research into how the Ethereum network worked. And this was like, gosh, three years ago. And I have basically forgotten everything about that project. Um, I, I probably remember a few interesting things to know and tell. Um, but my intent, what I was trying to do there, and what I, I think reasonably accomplished there, is to sort of draw out a... a, a a map of what the Ethereum network looked like, not necessarily from a geographic level, um, but more like a, um, you know, what nodes are actually producing the blocks that wind up in the blockchain and how do those blocks propagate across the blockchain? Because at the time I was really interested in prediction markets. Um, Augur was one in particular that was, uh, had a lot of attention and, and was, um, you know, people were talking about on, on Ethereum. And I was like, well, I mean, knowing what I know about traditional financial markets, mm-hmm. uh, if someone's going to place an order and it's going to take some amount of time to get to the exchange where it's going to actually be recorded, uh, 
being able to know that that order is coming has a lot of value. And that is I see. actually and what this the... This is talking about like in a distributed exchange like you would yes. see on an Ethereum-y magical something something. Got it. I see. Yes. Yes. So I, I was like trying to figure out if this was a problem. Basically, like, is this a flaw in the theory behind distributed... I mean, it would really be any distributed type of exchange. Yeah. But specifically, I was interested in prediction markets and, and Augur in particular. What is a what is a prediction market? I feel like we're going we're getting derailed immediately here. Yeah, right. you should tell me we're what gonna, a prediction market is because that's sounds... way we're going to put a lot of things on the conversation stack and then we're going to pop them back off again and figure out. And where then we'll we're be like, started. Yes. blurry backgrounds, uh, blurry <laughs> backgrounds. Um, so yeah, um, a prediction market is a uh, a particular type of financial exchange. It's similar to a, a futures market. It's similar to, um, uh, if you know what a binary option is, it has some similarity to that. But basically, the idea behind a prediction market is that you use the quote-unquote wisdom of the crowds mm-hmm. to predict the probability of future events by letting people bet on whether those future events will occur. Um, okay. There have been a few of these. Um sort of normal centralized ones. I think there was one called sort of an I insight. I want to say insight. Wasn't I that's correct. It rings a vague bell that like some university was involved with one of them at, at some stage in order yes. to Well there's one called Predict It. Um right. which actually recently I think got shut down. They got their they had gotten a letter, a no action letter from um some government agency, the CFTC. The SEC or the FTC or Yeah, something yeah, like that. C- CLC um, or Yeah. And the, the that agency recently rescinded their no action letter because of some things that Predict It was doing. And all of by the way, when that happened, I'm sure all of the Augur and sort of Ethereum based distributed network uh prediction market folks went see see i told you so see see right. um uh, right yeah um, so this prediction market is somewhere where i can bet on a future thing happening or not mm-hmm. so yes. like what like a, a a presidential election or something like that and i say i think uh the conservatives are going to get in to the next uk uh, g- general um, election, mm-hmm. and so I I bet, but mm-hmm. who's taking the other side of the bet? And how do you how does someone work out the probability of that happening or something? Because like presumably I like bet a hundred quid or whatever, and then someone will I, yeah. yeah. What, 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 yeah. How does that bit work? Yeah, so I mean the the way that d- different markets do it in different ways. Um, my memory of Augur is that the way that they did it is that you you basically uh wound up creating two tokens every time you you sort of placed an order there was there was one that it would happen and one that it wouldn't and if the the transaction got through or basically if the order was filled if you matched with somebody else that mm-hmm. that took an opposing uh position at a matching probability and price, like that's sort of the the, the magic right, of prediction okay, yeah. markets is that the price and the probability are the same. They're linked together in some way, right? Exactly. Right. So like, you know, in the case of predicted, it was like all of the prices have to be between one penny and 99 cents, right? Um, and that was the basically the probability that you were saying, you know, if you're buying something for 56 cents, you were saying there was a 56% chance it was going to And something happen. like you buy it for 56 cents and it's either worth nothing or it's worth a dollar. When right. the market actually, when you decide, and therefore the price approaches 
the certainty of the event as as, exactly. as it, yeah got it okay now that makes sense exactly. to me as some sort of very hand waving yeah you know. yeah yeah but There's... like so any exchange you know, from a t- traditional finance point of view i mm. like you say any exchange knowledge is power and if you can see somebody is strongly buying up something on one side of your network and you can see that the price is therefore therefore going to go up you can take mm-hmm. advantage of that and that's what you exactly. were trying to do with this was to say is that a problem yes can yes. this There's... actually be gamed in some way or is it just right. fundamentally flawed and in order right. to do that we're going slowly back up the stack here, although i can <laughs> yeah. easily go back down we're gonna again. get to rest here any minute <laughs> any second any second yeah, right um you're, you wrote a program in Rust that parsed some kind of exhaust from the Ethereum network itself to see how information traveled across the network. Yeah, I mean, that- I wouldn't even give myself the credit to say that I wrote a program in Rust. What I did was I made some modifications to the uh, Rust Ethereum, the, the Ethereum node that was written in Rust to capture some information as it was flowing through the node and to sort of... Um, Intention and change its behavior a little bit. Basically, right. what I would do is when an Ethereum node connects to the network, it finds some number of peers that it can pull information from, basically pull the blockchain information from. And I've made some modifications to that to actually actively seek out peers in the network. So you instead of just taking whatever peers I discovered... I see. I would try to like backtrack and figure out like, okay, well, you got this from this node. So I'm going to go back to that node, connect it directly and figure out, oh, you got this from that node and sort of try to work my way back and be like, where are these blocks coming from, right? Like what nodes are are generally originating the blocks on the blockchain? Um, Because that is probably the first reliable place that you would see this information. Additionally, the other thing that you can do when you connect to these nodes is look at the transaction pool. So these are the pending transactions that may or may not show up in future blocks. I see. And these you are can like get yeah to be mined in the kind of yes. Bitcoiny sense of it. There are things that are, 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 are yet to be checked to make sure that they are actually okay in terms right. of the rules of the network, but they will be put into the next available block once the once whoever wins the lottery wins the lottery and pr- right. pr- publishes a new one. Got it. Exactly, exactly. And you can see, you know, the gas costs that they're willing to pay and, you know, the way Ethereum works is the higher you pay, the more you pay for, for your, your transaction costs, your gas costs, the more likely it is that you'll wind up in a block. So you can look at like, it's almost like being able to look at the queue of incoming f- orders into an exchange. Like these orders haven't hit the, oh. the book yet, but they will but- at some point. Assuming um, they aren't like, um, yeah. Assuming they aren't ill-formed or they right. haven't got like double spend kind of things. That's the whole thing that the bl- blockchain and uh, technology. Sorry, the whole the thing that the miners are supposed to be doing is doing all these checks. Right. Um, right. Then, then that will stand. That order will stand once all of the checks have been done. So you can look right. at it and kind of go, well, this is an intention to send yes. an order, even yes. if it isn't an actual order, and you can use that as a. Yes. Oh, that's really interesting. Right, and, and you so, can even do some things to validate for yourself that those things will, in fact, right. clear through. Because right? you you could be right mining yourself at this point. You yes. could you know your node is capable of doing the mining. It's just that you need to solve some drastically complicated maths problem yeah. in order to mine the block, and that's just not what you're interested in doing. But you could run the same checks that you would do. Yeah, yeah. You don't even need to solve the drastically complicated math problem. Right, you because you don't care about that part validation. of it, right? You don't have to right, sign yeah. it effectively, which yeah. is the, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, that yeah. happened to be written in Rust already, so you modified yes. an existing piece of code. 
Yes. yes. So what were your experiences like then? Obviously, you've done a whole bunch of procedural style sort of Mm -hmm. C-derived-ish languages before. Yeah. Um, What were your thoughts about Rust then? Yeah, yeah, probably the closest analog to Rust that I had worked with at the time, and this is probably still true, is Scala. I wrote a little bit of Scala. Interesting. Probably about... 10 years ago something like that um that had you know that sort of like you know heavy use of algebraic types and pattern matching and all those sorts of things got it yeah um and you know like it was a little hard for me to separate the challenges of working in that style of language versus the challenges of just working in a completely unfamiliar code base right because this was a fairly mature piece of software and you know i i and I kind of knew the domain, but not you know nearly as well as I sort of had to eventually learn to sort of figure all this stuff out. So there was a lot of additional layers of challenge uh, heaped up on on top of this to sort of get me to where I wanted to go. But um, the uh, the language itself, I thought was really nice. The tooling, I thought was really nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the compiler was a little slow, but it was also doing a lot of work for me. So it was sort of like, okay, I get why this is going to be slow. Um, the interesting thing for me, obviously, being so like, you know, test driven and everything, was like I tried to write some tests for the code that I was changing, and I managed to write a few, but the code in this Ethereum wallet, I don't think, was particularly designed to be tested. And, and even if it, I even mean, it's if not doing anything important after that, all. <laughs> <laughs> right, of course. Only yeah. <laughs> Only sending transactions worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Um so yeah, I mean the the challenge I think was was finding a new level for me, a new sort of baseline for me in the balance between sort of types and tests, right? Because like depending on the language that I'm working in, I might write more or less tests. I definitely don't want to write tests for things that are guaranteed by the type system. That's silly. Right. Um and so um, working in Rust for me was sort of, I, uh, I was discovering multiple things at the same time. A, <laughs> how this Ethereum node worked. B, yep. like the general structure of this code base. C, how Rust worked. Um, and then D, how to write tests for existing code in Rust that didn't just check what the compiler was checking for me. Got it. So all of those things together made for a pretty interesting but challenging experience. But so, what was the? Um, I mean, just ignoring the Rust aspect of this for a second, what was the upshot? Did you find anything interesting in in your uh, analysis? Yeah, I, I'd have to go back and and look at the data that I captured to remind myself exactly what it was. But it, the the what I saw was that there are very there at the time. It's probably different now. There were very specific nodes on the Ethereum network where it's like if you wanted to see the transactions first, you just go there and you get them. And these right, are like so. nodes where. Um, the whole thing's peer to peer, right? So if I mm-hmm. want to put a new thing on the network, I connect to my to just some random peers. But clearly, the folks who are placing orders more were either geographically located in a place where their client had connected them to some set of peers that were able to take the load, or or, or some other aspect. But and you were able to say, well, this is these are where you should go if you want to see those kinds of orders and, and yeah, whatever yeah. reason for whatever reason. Right. I didn't come to any conclusions about the reason. And at the end of the day, it's not really that important. Like, is this happening because of internet network topology? Is it happening because of geography? Is it happening because of default settings in the Right, in is the it just literally the, the nodes? It's like... Connection.ini file in there. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but it doesn't actually matter if, if the transactions show up somewhere first 
that's you where you want to be there first, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that actually um, discouraged me from pursuing any more stuff with distributed um, prediction markets on Ethereum because I was like, well, I think this, I think this game is. The game you're playing here is not, you know, how do I operate effectively in this market? The game you're playing here is how do I get the transactions first? And and literally front run. I mean, people use the term front running for lots of things. Which is a legally defined term, I would just yes. like to say, because people exactly. use it in a lot of ways that are not correct, right. especially given our industry. We're a little sensitive to that. But exactly. in this case, literal front running, because you could observe the pending orders that were yet to be... Um, placed on the blockchain and you could make a decision based on them and then you could try and get your order in before them by sending it to faster nodes or different nodes or more no or some just something. pay more gas you could send or it to the exact same note. you say okay they're paying more they're paying oh. two eth of gas i'm going to pay three eth and i'll get there first yeah that makes yeah. sense so yeah, yeah. gosh yeah I, so that really it. dissuaded me from doing anything in those markets because i'm like this is very gameable um, and that was that was basically my conclusion. And then after that, I just stopped working on all the rest. I, I kind of like it's almost like you have the revelation. And you're like, oh, and you just sort of like back away slowly. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. Well, so a lot of rust there, but there was a lot of other things going on mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. So my my toy project was uh, at least the first one I wrote was this uh, path tracer or ray tracer. I mean, they're similar. Path tracing is what it's doing technically, but ray tracing. If people know what ray tracing is. It's basically that. Uh, and I do that. I've done that in pretty much every language um, I've, I've learned of recent times. It's just like my kind of icebreaker. I know the domain fairly well. The maths is pretty interesting. There's some modeling things. It's kind of an OOE type project, but you don't have to do it in OO. In fact, I have a talk where I write that program three different ways in just in C++ using uh, object-oriented or functional or data-oriented design kind of techniques just to show that they're how multi-paradigm C++ is. But anyway, I was writing this in Rust. I'm, I'm very familiar with it also. It's almost like the opposite of your problem. I wasn't exploring anything other than the language. Mm -hmm. And um, my experiences were very positive. I, I also, and this was a little while ago, I also hit the compiler is slow issue, yeah. but then I, I know that it has improved a lot since when I was uh, writing this particular bit of code with. Um, and I was able to crack out something that I was pretty happy with. And then uh, where I fell over um, was trying to get it working nicely with, with multi-threading. And maybe that was just my inability to express to the compiler that what I was doing was, quote, okay. Mm. Uh, because I couldn't convince at the time the borrow checker that the way that I was sharing mutable state, sorry, sharing constant state and had some things that were mutable that had locks around them. I couldn't explain it to it that like, hey, I've got eight threads here and they're all doing different parts of the picture so you don't have to worry about them treading on each other's toes, I promise you. Again, either maybe I was mistaken and I was actually doing something that wasn't mm -hmm. safe and it was just... but um, or, or you couldn't explain it at the time or I just didn't know how to do it. But certainly I ended up writing unsafe around just one tiny bit of the code. And that's, again, somebody could probably go and find it on GitHub and tell me what I was doing wrong. But um, that kind of was like a reminder that there is an escape hatch in Rust for mm -hmm. things... Um, and, you know, the, on the one hand, I was disappointed. I think at the time I was like, oh, gosh, this is silly. Can't do any non-trivial program without invoking, you know, unsafe mm -hmm. stuff, which turns off all of the, 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 the things that Rust guarantees you, which we should actually talk about, because obviously if people are listening here, just hearing us talk about Rust, the things that Rust mm -hmm. can do for you is pretty clever, the mm -hmm. compiler. Um, 
But it occurs to me, on sober reflection, that all of C++ has the unsafe keyword right at the very beginning. That's like the first thing you open. <laughs> Void main unsafe is what C++ is. And so yes. kind of anything anything that restricts the scope of the unsafety to smaller right. and smaller parts of your code right. is got to be a good thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. you know, but I think probably that is just something I've learned to carry around with me. And then I trust myself, rightly or wrongly, not to write code that is unsafe inherently, even though there's no protection in C++ from you doing it. You can easily do the wrong thing all of the time. And that's why I turned on all the warnings, I have all the sanitizers, all of these things to try and give me a, uh, a, a, a safe mode light. Um, but Rust has it kind of as the default, which is like a huge, huge, huge boon to Rust. And so one of the things that Rust has is the borrow checker. And this is like a technology relatively novel to my knowledge. I don't know where it came from. Maybe a research that was done just for the Rust language. But it is a way for the compiler to track in the type system the kinds of references that objects have. And so you can pass an object to some other function by reference. And the contract there is that the lifetime of the object from the parser to the parsee, mm-hmm. um, the lifetime of the, uh, the, the caller effectively has to be longer than the lifetime of the callee, right? The callee can't hang on to it, unlike, say, in C++, where you could just go, oh, thank you for poising, passing a pointer to me. I'm going to mm-hmm. store it in a, in a member variable now inside my class. Like, that would be an error in Rust, because it's like, no, 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 no. I can't prove now that you aren't going to live longer than the person who called you. So you can't do that. And there are ways and means of explaining when it's okay. One of the ways it's okay is like, actually, I'm not passing you the value. I'm not giving you a copy of a reference to the value. I am giving you the ownership of that value. It's yours now. I can't see it anymore. I can't use it anymore. And now you have it. And now, again, that's fine. That's safe there. The lifetime now lives with you. And and I, I can't see it anymore. That's great. And there are all sorts of ways of dealing with uh, mutability and non-mutability. So you can pass multiple references to multiple objects for an object that are read-only. Uh, if the compiler can prove that the caller, again, has a longer lifespan than all of the things that it's passed to. Mm-hmm. But you can only pass out one... Um, sorry, you can only pass out one mutable reference where, and you can't have any read like read-only references at that point. So kind of a bit like, um, I suppose, like locking. You know, you've got optimistic read-locking. You know, everyone gets gets a read-locker lock, but the writer's lock uh, requires all the readers to go away, and then you are uniquely the person with the reference to that object. And that's done, again, in the type system, which is really, really clever, because that means that there's a category of bug that you just can't write. You can't express it, exactly as you were saying with with the tests that you were writing. Um, Any test that says... Am I using the? Am I? Is the lifetime of this object okay? Is moot yeah, right. because it just won't compile if it's not right. Yes, exactly. And that's amazing and powerful, but because programs are complicated and obviously it is in general impossible to determine the flow of a program statically, um, there there are limitations of what the borrow checker can do in in code, and that also takes a while. It's a part of the reason that the the compilation yeah. process is a little slower, is it's got to do this kind of tracking. So that's why that's my experiences with Rust was trying to explain to the borrow checker what I was mm-hmm. doing was okay, mm-hmm. and then more recently I wrote a little command line tool to replace like twenty five lines of Python, and it was about mm-hmm. twenty five lines of Rust, and mm-hmm. it just worked and it was really easy. Um, I found it quite like the the command line parsing library was was there and easy, and we should say 
Rust has an amazing community of, of libraries that are easy to install using Cargo, which is like the one size fits all yeah, executable yeah. that right. is like build the code, download the dependencies, um, package the code, send the code up to, um, to, to be shared. It's just great. Mm-hmm. And it, it does everything the right, the right way by my own personal biases <laughs> of how things should be done. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was a really good experience writing a little command line tool. And as a pleasant surprise to me, almost everything that is built by default is statically built, bundled into the executable, the resulting executable. Uh-huh. So as, as long as you have a somewhat contemporary libc and a couple of other like very core libraries that you're likely to have in your, on your system, you can pretty much just copy that executable around. And yeah. that was exactly the use case that we had. Um, was to give be able to give people a little you know small binary that they can just run and get um, a simple output. It was just a, a like a log parser, and yeah, that was great. Yeah. So that was a great yeah. experience. I like that. Yeah, I dig that model a lot. I mean, that's part of the reason I I think we've talked before on the, on the podcast about like I've never taught myself Go because I feel like someone should pay me to do it because it's just so useful for that category of problem that I I just know at some point in the future I'm gonna have to do that and I'm just like ah. I'll, I'll, that, I'll do exactly. that on the clock. Yeah, yeah. yeah Go yeah. was Go was the sweet spot for me before. Yeah, and then actually, so recently I hit an issue where I had, um, in fact, people can't see this obviously on the podcast, but behind me I have a little scrolly device. It's mm. like a physical device I plug in, and it has uh, sixty-four by thirty-two LEDs or something like that, maybe a bit more than that, and I can put arbitrary scrolling pictures on there and it just literally they're animating gifs i can post to a web server and it ends up on on there and so i have you know like stats and things like that that appear in it and it's great it's fun it's called a tidbit there you can still buy them um but they're more expensive than you think but anyway the little program that you can run to like write a little script to push particular images to it that provides you know like here's a a framework for doing scroll texts and um wipes and all that kind of stuff it's um it's written in go and so it's just a binary. They say, hey, yeah, just download this binary. And so you do, and you get it, and that's great. And, I'm, you know, in my mind, Go binaries are just statical – static – statical. God. <laughs> Go binaries are just static executables you run, and they just work everywhere, right? As long as you're on the right mm-hmm. architecture and, and roughly the right operating system, you're great. But this was not true. Um, for this particular mm-hmm. thing, it was linking with, like, libwebp, which is some the, the logical successor to animating GIFs is the WebP format. And that was dynamically loaded. It just so happened that I oh. had it on my system, so it worked. But I upgraded my operating system, and it no longer worked. And huh. I actually had to go and buy, download it and build it from source so that I could get it working again. I'm like, this is not what I expected of you, Go. What happened? And maybe it's just a, a mistake on the part of the people who, who packaged the... Uh, the oh, system, but I, I had never experienced this before, so it obviously can happen. And then actually, I ran LDD on a few um, binaries that are Go, and I realized they are actually dynamically linking with something. So it's it's more like the same as, as Rust in this instance. So maybe Rust and Go are equivalent in this space, which is great if there are uh, choices. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, um, you know, reflecting back on, and, you know, what you were saying about the, the borrow checker and, and how it works and how it's sort of safeguarding things for you i really felt and i don't like this but it's this is like this is on me uh when i was working in rest i have distinct memories of like feeling like i was just you know driving down the street bouncing off the guardrails um because i didn't really fully understand what was going on and uh i was just trying basically just being empirical and experimental with the compiler 
to figure out, like try to figure out like what the, the language was trying to do and what I was trying to tell the compiler to do. This is um, like um, the sort of like the C programmers, you know, new, someone who's new to C programming and putting ampersands and stars in until they uh, get the yeah. value out from the pointer or not pointer uh-huh. or did you need a pointer to a pointer? I don't understand it. Star, start. No, that didn't compile. Right. Yes. Kind of feel yes. for it. You know, like, do I need to make yes. a ref of this? Do I need to box right. or unbox it? Which of these magical things do I need to do to make it right. get to the next thing? And what did I really say when I buy saying that? Yeah. Is that yeah. not true uh, of most languages, though? Uh, well, I mean, it, it can be true in any language, but anytime I'm in that state, I, it just feels icky, right? Like, yeah. I feel like I'm, just, I'm, I, I'm literally making it up as I go along, which is not the kind of thing that I want to do. And so it was, it was hard for me, um, and maybe this is because more about not Rust in particular, but just the sort of programming style. Because, you know, like I said, I, I had done some Scala before, but I kind of got a little bit of that vibe in Scala too, not nearly as bad. Um, so it's maybe just like that programming style in my brain just don't, don't fit, or maybe I just haven't done enough of it. I don't know what, um, but it, it, it just sort of like, I really don't like a world where I'm like, all right, I wrote a bunch of code. Let's see what happens. Right. Like there's always a little bit of that. There's of always course. like, I'm not going to make the assumption that I did this right, but I at least want to have some level of confidence that like I'm attempting to do the thing that I'm trying to do and I'm not just basically just you know voodoo chicken coding where I'm like just like I don't know like programming just... by coincidence like yeah hey, right right I, to, in fairness though yeah I think there is a little of that in anything you do and, and if you were in the middle of a, a novel code base as well the it's exempt uh, you know it, it's exacerbated by the fact that yes. you not only didn't know the language you didn't know that maybe someone had made a call that wasn't necessarily yeah. the right call about how something should be done and then you were suffering the consequences yeah, yeah. of it you know, you get to that point where you can have a strong opinion about like, this is just being done wrong. And that's why I can't do this thing that should be obvious. Right. So maybe a bit of that in there. Plus, I yeah. think there's just that mastery feeling. And if you've been working in languages for a while that you feel you've mastered, mm-hmm. you know, if you can bang out 20 lines of code and know that it will compile and run and be probably right, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, you'd realize you're in that, that, uh, uh, yeah. that, that sort of, um, at uh, level of, uh, 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 expertise and then it's kind of difficult to go back and very frustrating right. to be in a situation where you aren't able to just do that yeah, yeah so maybe a bit of that. anyway true. but mm-hmm. but yeah overall i mean i loved cargo i love the ecosystem i love the so the theory behind the language um you know i i haven't found a problem yet where i'm like the right answer to this is rust but you know as you were pointing out about go maybe Maybe that's the language I should be thinking about when yeah, I do that. Yeah, next time you want a little command line you know, thing, I need, um, I need something command line. Let's maybe just need to like copy Rust. somewhere and have it work and run on like a bunch of computers. Right. That's it's not you could go far far wrong. Right. So right. who do we know who is using Rust? Because famously Mozilla have sort of backed away from it, and the Rust mm-hmm. Foundation was born separate from Mozilla to sort of carry on the torch of mm-hmm. um, of the language. Um. The only people I know of that are seriously involved in Rust are some some acquaintances and pals at um, uh, at Amazon, mm-hmm. who um, Amazon picked up quite a lot number uh, of the the Rust core team after the Mozilla um, announcement mm-hmm. that they were not continuing with it. And um, I mean, to me, that makes some level of sense. I mean, uh, Amazon want to hedge their bets for a lot of different 
use cases. And so one of the many languages they support or could support is Rust. And so maybe they're looking in that particular direction. I don't know. But um, what, who else is using Rust? But, you know, everyone, everyone knows someone who wants to use it. And it's like, oh, for my yeah, next project, yeah, yeah. I might use Rust. But no one I know is actually writing it that much. Uh, I'm I'm Googling something real quick because I remember from when I was looking at this more deeply, there was a guy that was way into Rust for embedded software. Oh, neat. And I'm trying to remember this person's name. And Google is failing me here. Um, but that was, that was an area that I thought... Um, like, he had uh, gotten... Uh, the Rust compiler working on these like little ARM chips, and oh god, I really want to like track this guy down. Maybe I'll see it. Maybe if I can find this, and I'll just put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes if we find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, it was really interesting, and this was this was definitely one, this was like the classic example of like. Well, this is a solution that I really wish I had a problem for. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> this stuff looks so interesting, but it's just like, I, I don't know how I would use I got this a, right now. I got a drawer full of things that look like that, just right <laughs> yeah. down here, various things. Yeah. Like, oh, this would be cool, and then never got anywhere with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I will, uh, I'll track that down and put it in the show notes. But there was a guy, one person in particular, who was just like very committed to this and like trying to put it on as many... Um, Put it on as many uh, embedded as systems and like tiny yeah. systems because I mean, it's a native mm-hmm. thing it has no runtime it's kind of right sweet spot for this kind of thing right and the guarantees that it provides uh, you know i mean nothing's more terrifying <laughs> to me than the idea of i mean block it's blockchain smart contracts also have this property and they are equally terrifying where it's like i'm gonna write this code and i'm gonna put it out in the world and there's no take backsies right like <laughs> this is it this is it. It's going to be out there, and it's no got to be right. Yeah, yep. yeah, 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 yeah. That's an interesting so, one. Yes. Um, Rust has, you know, a lot of. I'll, I'll, I'll be a lot more patient with the slow compiler if I'm in that in that situation. If you're like, like yeah, like, writing an embedded yes. system for a brake microcontroller in a car uh, or something, but yeah, yeah that's right. different. I mean, they're already the, yeah, those folks are already in the world of like writing Misra C, which is like a subset of yeah things in C. So maybe yeah, Rust could take over from there. But I guess actually we're talking of things that are using it that we know of obviously then you mentioned blockchain type stuff so uh, yeah. the, the the ethereum node that you were writing uh modifying was obviously rust is there other yeah. aspects of in the crypto world perhaps or is, is it got more traction in crypto than somewhere else not that i am aware of i'm trying to remember the name of that ethereum node parity parity was the name of the ethereum node um and parity P-A-R-I-T-Y. P-A-R-I-T-Y, yes. Not parody, right. as in like, like a parrot. <laughs> right. Parrot- or parody like Weird Al Yankovic. Right. Oh, yeah. You Americans and your, your unclear diction. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you want some water? Um, oh! The- <laughs> Why would you leave the D out of water? Um, yeah, you know, looking at... <laughs> parody parody might not be alive anymore i'm sort of looking at all right this, uh, this but it was repo. a project that, that was around at least at some oh, point yeah. in, in rust That's yeah cool. absolutely so yeah I, I don't know if there's other places in in the crypto world that uses it but, but rust sort of has the always the bridesmaid never the bride kind of <laughs> feel to it everyone likes wants to it's the the language you want to kind of look at next but yeah if we just get that one cool problem that yeah. will fit it and you know we haven't quite got there yet, except for like a little log parser in my case, and, right, and right. some now now defunct 
Ethereum node. Blockchain software, yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, before we um, further show up our our ignorance really as to the current state of rust maybe we should leave mm-hmm. it there with our with with that that yeah this is what i'm hoping we get a lot of uh you know twitter responses and people being like oh it's used here it's used here yeah that would be here. cool that i mean be, maybe that, that would push us over the edge as well of like uh of using mm-hmm. it ourselves in yeah. our day job because i think that's where it really starts to matter isn't it is where someone will pay yeah. you to do that work yeah. is when something becomes uh worth talking about at least obviously obviously Learning it for your own sake is also very much worthwhile. I mean, I was writing mm-hmm. JavaScript long before someone was paying me to write JavaScript. But, right. But um, it definitely helps justify uh, the investment yeah. of time to learn something if, if it's uh, your primary or a primary responsibility. Yeah, I mean, because then you get to do it every day, right? And it's like... How you get better becomes... at something. Cool. Well. All right. You want to call it there? Let's call it there. All right. Until next time, my friend. Until next time. been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com. <laughs>